0: Ah, politics. We love our politics, don't we? Maybe a little too much, some of us. I contend that politics has become an idol for many in our culture. And I make that contention on sound reasoning, exhibit A being social media. Just scroll through it sometime, and you will see many people who have made an idol of politics. You know what politics means? It's a Latin word. Polly, meaning many, and ticks, which are blood-sucking creatures. <laughs> and hearing me preach, you may form the impression that I don't care for politics. Quite the opposite. I probably care a little too much, which is why a sermon on politics is geared to me uh, more so than anybody else, because I can easily get riled up and angry. I can remember my first foray into politics, at least that I remember, was... Staying with my grandfather. My grandfather was a big Ronald Reagan fan. He was the first president that I really remember. And I remember the dinner table discussions about our country and how we need a change and we need a leader and we need somebody that's respectable and presidential and all those kind of things. And I just remember all those discussions. I, like many of you, find myself getting too invested at times and having to back off a little bit. It bothers me to see certain things happen in our culture, especially the removal of God from the public square. But when I talk about politics, and maybe it seems like that I'm a little too harsh when it comes to my view against it, perhaps, really what I'm trying to guard us against is is bowing down to an earthly leader or an earthly system. It is great that we have a political system that allows us to, to vote for our leaders, and I think we should. I don't think it's a sin if you don't, but I think we should. I think we, you know, my personal opinion is that uh, if this is the system that we have at our disposal, then let's let's vote for people that uphold our values and, and that are moral people that will lead us in the right direction. However, no matter who's the president, no matter who is elected Congresswoman, Congressman or Senator or, or whoever is appointed Supreme Court justices, God is still on his throne. And he will continue to be. I'm not anti-politics. I'm pro-Jesus. He's my king. Not my president. He's my king. We don't vote on this. He's the king. And he's going to be the king whether you acknowledge him or not. And the king has a plan to change the world. It's called the gospel. The good news. And here it is. Jesus is God in the flesh. He came to this earth. Lived as a man died on a cross, was buried. Three days later, he rose again, thus showing his victory over sin and death, making him the king of all kings. He died to atone for the sins of all mankind, to welcome all people into the kingdom. When one obeys the gospel, he or she enters into a covenant relationship with the king. He promises to love us, protect us, forgive us, and even raise us from the dead one day. Jesus transforms the citizens of his kingdom to people that go the extra mile, who feed the hungry, give the thirsty something to drink, people who turn the other cheek, people who put others before themselves, people who bless those who persecute them. It's an upside down way to live. But you think about how different our world would be if everyone lived like this. You wouldn't have to worry about a lot of the issues that are going on in our culture. They would be abolished. But that's a little too naive, isn't it? That's kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. Not everyone has what Jesus, not everyone wants, I should say, what Jesus has to offer. It's kind of like the prophet Jeremiah. Is there no balm in Gilead? Of course there was, but not everybody wanted the, the cure. Not everyone wanted the remedy. And not everyone wants Jesus. However, If everyone lived like Jesus, we wouldn't have the issues that we have. He is the king. There is no election for this king of kings. He's already won. He will always be the king. And it's for this very reason that I think we should all pour our heart and soul into his agenda. I don't have time and the energy to be divided in my allegiance. I want to do my utmost to change the world one soul at a time. And I think our time is better spent proclaiming the excellency of the king. And again, this isn't pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. This is reality. The good news of Jesus Christ has already done more to transform the lives of people than either party could ever do. That's why I don't attach my hopes to politics. I'm not going to allow a political process or a political party or a political candidate to have my heart. Doesn't mean I'm not going to be involved. Doesn't mean I'm not going to vote. Doesn't mean that there's not some really good people who are involved in politics. Doesn't mean that politics hasn't done some really good things. Here's my political position. I'll give it to you tonight. In simple terms with no apologies, here it is. Jesus is king. No matter who is president, no matter what happens to this country, my king has already won. Spoiler alert, we win in this thing. We know how this whole thing ends. Doesn't mean we might not go through some tribulation here on earth, but we know how this whole thing turns out. I have no interest or no stake in what happens around me above what's happening or has already happened because of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I know that he is taking care of this. I know that he is taking care of me and you, and I know how this whole thing ends. And so, first and foremost, he is my king. I serve him first. And that brings me to the passage that we're looking at tonight. Romans 13 is often used as a treatise on, on government and, and how we should function and, and how God has set up government. But there's really a whole lot more to it than that. Because what you're going to see is in the first seven verses, Paul is talking about, Our private debts, or excuse me, our public debts, and he's linking them to a private debt that we all owe, and he's making a bigger point than just government. He's making a bigger point about what we owe to one another. Look at it with me. Starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to the taxes that are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, Romans chapter 13 has to be understood in light of Romans chapter 12. Now, we don't have time to go back and read all of Romans chapter 12. You can do that sometime. But Paul tells the Christians who are living in Rome, how they are to live their lives in light of God's mercy. The overriding theme of Romans chapter 12 is this, Christians are to be a people of peace even though you're persecuted, even mistreated, Christians must be a people of peace. That is why he tells them to be patient in tribulation and to bless their persecutors. They're told to repay no one evil for evil, but instead they are to feed their enemies, give them something to drink. Paul tells the Roman Christians to take no part in vengeance. And do you know why? Because it's not their job. That's God's job. And God's tool for vengeance may come from the most unlikely place on the face of the earth, the Roman governing authorities. You see, in spite of Rome's wickedness, Paul states that they serve a God-ordained purpose. And because of, of, of this, because they serve a God-ordained person, purpose, Christians should be subject to their authority. Now, this really doesn't come as much as a, Surprise! because if you read through the Old Testament you see over and over again that there were wicked nations that God used to bring the people into compliance whether we're talking about Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or whoever God used evil nations to carry out his divine purposes but understand this passage Romans chapter 12 this is not a charter to Caesar on how to run the government that's not what this is Nor was this God legitimizing Caesar's rule. What must be remembered is that this was written to Christians whose citizenship wasn't in Rome to begin with. They didn't belong there. It was in heaven. That was where their citizenship was. So Paul's message to these Christians in Rome was, pay your taxes. No matter anyway, you don't belong here. Pay your taxes. Don't resist the government. And that's a little unsettling for me. I don't know about you, but that's a little unsettling for me. I'd like to have heard something else, but we don't get a different message. And what we often take away from Romans chapter 13 is that Christians must obey the laws of the land. But what Romans 13 is really getting at is submission. And you're saying to yourself, well, isn't that the same thing, obeying the laws of the land, submission? Yes and no, Right. They can be the same thing, but they can have some distinction as well. Submission is about placing yourself under someone else's authority and oversight. It's about relationship and not just action. You can submit without obeying, just as you can obey without submission. Submission says you're in charge and I'm not. Now, obviously, Paul would not demand that Christians obey the Roman government in matters that violated God's word. That comes first. You always obey God first, and we see that example throughout Scripture as well. But they were to submit to the governing authorities, pay their taxes like good little Roman citizens because Rome was not their residence and vengeance was not their duty. Throughout the Bible, we find instruction for how one should live as a foreigner and as an exile. Over and over again, we see this God's instruction to Christians or to his people that are living in exile. How to live as an exile. And over and over again, the message is what? We don't like it necessarily, but the message is wait. Wait. That's the message over and over again. Hang on. Just wait. I'm taking care of this. I'm working behind the scenes. It's going to work out in your favor. Just hang on. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. That's my job. You do what you should be doing, and I'll take care of the rest. Be at peace Wait, spread the gospel, do those things, and I'll take care of the rest. So, what Paul is trying to get across to these Christians, and to us as well, is to be about Jesus and the gospel. Make that your number one priority. Don't get sidetracked from your identity and your mission, no matter what's going on around you. Paul's hope is that all these Christians in Rome would lay low and fly under the radar, just be at peace, do what they're supposed to, obey the laws, pay their taxes, all those kind of things. Of course, that didn't happen, right? They couldn't remain in stealth mode because they were persecuted for not worshiping the Caesar. That was the line that was drawn. Uh, They couldn't bow down to Caesar, so therefore they were persecuted. But that brings up a question. Paul states that governing authorities are God's quote-unquote servant. He even refers to them as ministers, and that seems contradictory. How could the Roman government, how could Caesar be considered a servant or a minister? Well, that's where many have gotten off track when interpreting this passage. They say that when the government does good things, when they uphold my values, then it's because God placed them there. But if they don't uphold God's values or my values or virtues, then then it's not God-ordained. It's illegitimate. And I can see how we might come to that conclusion. I mean, Paul even writes that rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. So yeah, I get how one could reach that conclusion that if the government doesn't uphold God's preordained uh, practices and virtues and values and things like that, then they must be illegitimate. But again, Paul's not taking a hard stance on what constitutes a legitimate government. And I think that's where we get off track sometimes. He's encouraging these Christians to submit. Why? Well, because God is in control, and when God is in control, he can even use a bad ruler. He can even use a bad government. He can even use an illegitimate government to accomplish his will, and we've seen this happen, haven't we? You see this play out in scripture. Maybe you've witnessed it firsthand, but we've certainly read about it. Israel wanted to be like the rest of the nations around them, who had an earthly king? So they begged God for a king, and, and God told them it wasn't a good idea. I mean, they had the best king anyone could ever ask for. But God finally relents, and he gives them a king, Saul, and that didn't really work out too well. And while you see some good kings sprinkled out throughout the history of earthly kings for Israel, most of them were bad. And it was not a good decision on their part to have an earthly king. But yet, over and over again, you see God work through these bad immoral, earthly kings to bring about his divine will. You think about the genealogy in Matthew, the genealogy that that shows us the line from which the Messiah came. You see a lot of immoral people in that line, and yet God still used them to bring about the Messiah. So, it's in that context, Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7, that we get what Paul really wants to get to. Look at verse 8 and following. Own nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. There was a Roman nobleman who who died, and he died with a tremendous debt that he was able to conceal during his life. And they had an auction for his estate, and the emperor at the time told his servant, I want you to go and I want you to bid on an item, the item being this nobleman's pillow. And the servant asked Caesar, he said, why would I bid on the pillow? And Caesar said, because A man with that amount of debt, who can sleep at night, must have a tremendous pillow. (laughs) And you know, when, when we reach adulthood, most of us probably know what it means to be in debt, right? I mean, there's all kinds of debt that we're familiar with. We know about having a mortgage. We know about, you know, having a car payment. We know about credit card bills, we know about all the different student loan payments, uh, college tuition, we know all about having bills. Even if the bills aren't burdensome, they're always holding sway over us because we got a budget for them. We know that they're always there and they demand payment. How nice is it when you're able to write that last check for that 30-year mortgage and the house is yours? How nice is it to get that letter from the bank saying you have paid it off, your car is paid off, or, or writing that last check for a student loan. I know in the school business, being on the school board, burning the bond after you pay it off, that's a, that's a great thing. You feel a lot of relief. Of course, the way we're going, we're going pass another one, and you know, next, yeah, you, you get rid of one, you have to pass another one. But it's, it's a freeing experience to know that you've gotten rid of that debt. We all know about debt. Paul speaks of a debt that none of us will ever pay off, that we pay on daily. It's a debt that shouldn't be burdensome, but it's absolutely perpetual. Paul just finished talking about what we owe the government. He's talking about public debts, pay taxes to Caesar, you know, submit to the government. Those are public debts. Now he shifts the conversation from verse 7 to verse 8 in talking about a private debt, again, that we all owe. He says, that we are to owe love to one another. That word owe connects the thought from verse 7 to verse 8. And Paul shifts from addressing public debts to addressing private debts. And why is this debt so important? And why are we constantly paying on it? Well, for starters, it fulfills the law. What law? Well, obviously, he's talking about the old law, right? Right? You think about the Ten Commandments. You know, Jewish Christians were, were resistant to giving up the law. Even in matters of salvation, Paul was constantly dealing with, you know, being saved by grace versus being saved by the law. But he does make a connection and say that love doesn't destroy the law. Love fulfills the law. But these people had turned the law into something rote and mechanical, and Jesus is trying to write it on their hearts. He's trying to tell them, no, you, you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't covet because you love your fellow man. Not just because you want to be pleasing to God or you want to check it off the list. You do this because you love your fellow man. This is a love story. And yes, rules are, are involved and they're meant to be obeyed, but not just to modify behavior. Rules are there to lovingly protect us and guide us to the one who has nothing but our best interest at heart. Now, this may not resonate much with us since we're not Jewish Christians. However, we have two commands that should guide us as well. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments. That is Christianity in a nutshell. Love God, love your neighbor. We do this, we owe this, because it's commanded. But not only because it's commanded, but because more than that, God has loved us. And we owe that to our fellow man. And every time you think, well, my fellow man doesn't deserve this, Consider that you are what you despise. No matter what that other person has done to you, it's paltry and compared to what you did to deserve wrath, and yet God sent his son to die a cruel death on a cruel cross for you. You're always the greater debtor, and you're always what you despise. What you dislike in someone else Is certainly what you've done to God. You think about the reciprocation that's involved here. Someone died for you, and we owe it to him and to others to reciprocate that love back. We understand that Paul is not suggesting that our love be limited to other Christians, but to to other people as well. Yes, it starts in here, but it goes out there as well. We also owe love because we all come from the same spiritual womb. You know, one of the hallmarks of the church is it brings people together that probably otherwise wouldn't be together. I know we all have friends here, and we have a circle of friends that we hang out with, but, you know, a lot of times churches are filled with people who don't hang out together on Saturday night or any other night during the week. We come from all different backgrounds and environments. Yet we come together on Sunday to worship. Church is interesting because it's the one place where the ex-con can sit on the same row with the judge that sentenced him. It's the one place where a newly divorced woman who has three kids can sit on the same pew with the couple that's been married for 60 years. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it, That, that church is a place where we come together, where Maybe we wouldn't hang out together the rest of the week, but we're here to worship one another. Though we come from different walks of life or different life circumstances that are completely different, we come together to worship one God. We're all from the same spiritual DNA. We all come from the same spiritual room. We're all washed in the same blood. We all serve the same Father. And I owe you. And you owe me. I owe you because Christ showered love upon me. And God wants the people that you dislike in heaven every bit as much as he wants you there. God loves your enemies, even the ones that may be sitting in the same auditorium. So, hopefully you can see that Romans 13 is not as political as maybe we would like it to be. Paul is using the public debt that all citizens owed as a reference point for the private debt that all Christians owe to one another. We owe one another love. It is a perpetual debt, one that we never fully pay off. Paul is zeroing in on what it means to be a not of this world alien and what we should be concerned with most, which is kingdom matters, which is what we're hopefully concerned with most. Again, not that we shouldn't be involved in the political process, Not that we shouldn't be interested or even invested to some degree, but that we don't put all of our hopes and dreams into a political system. But rather, we look to God and Jesus. You know, I think if Paul were writing us a letter today, he would tell us, at the end of the day, you don't need the government. And I know that bothers us a little bit, and you may not like hearing that. I think there are many Christians that think we need the government. And it's nice to have the government. It's nice to have people and leadership that are on your side. But we don't need the government. The church throughout history has largely existed in environments where it didn't have government support. The first church never should have gotten off the ground. It certainly didn't have the support of the government. And yet, she thrived. said a couple of weeks ago, you know, there are more Christians in China now than there are in the United States, and the church has to exist underground. We're going to be okay. The church is going to be okay. I'm not suggesting that we just sit idly by while godless politicians take away our privileges that we have enjoyed and systematically remove God from the public square. And I'm, I'm not saying that we should not be involved or not be interested. I am saying that if we were to lose those privileges if we no longer had government protection, if the government becomes hostile towards Christianity, that would be tragic. But we'll make it. Even if persecution becomes our plight, the church will survive. Because we know how this thing turns out. If you were a member of a persecuted church, how would it change you? I'm not saying we need to pray for persecution but I wonder sometimes if the church had a, a dose of it if it wouldn't draw us closer to one another and closer to God. How do you think the Ukraine Christians worship today? It's probably a little bit different, wasn't it? So I'm not praying for persecution, but think about how you would, how you would worship if you're part of a persecuted church. Would you, would you draw closer together, closer to God, closer to one another? Would you maybe not care so much about some of the silly, trivial things, and religious scruples, I want to say this, don't allow politics to shape you. Start with your faith, not politics. Let that drive you. If you get God right, you get everything right. Let him shape you. See through his eyes. Be what he was about. How you vote is not the most important thing about you. Maybe important, but it's not the most important thing about you. That's not your identity, Your political party is not your identity. That's not what shapes you. And here's the thing. If we want our government to reflect Christian values, then you know what we need to do? We need to make and grow disciples. Our representative democracy will reflect Christian values as the church continues to make and grow disciples in this nation. As you've heard me say before, you don't truly change the world through politics. change it one soul at a time. Let's not get distracted from our job and our mission. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so blessed to be a part of this nation, to be a part of this church, your church. And God, we thank you for the freedoms that we get to enjoy, and we thank you so much for your constant watch and care over us. And we pray, God, that we never take those freedoms for granted, and we pray, God, that we never, never let anything, override our allegiance to you. May we look to you always as the author and perfecter of our faith. May we keep you on the throne, deferring to you as our king and our God. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Can we help you tonight? Is, is there something we can do to help you as you need prayers in this family? Do you need to need some other help or assistance? We'd love to Uh, to answer any kind of need that you might have. David's going to lead us in a song. Uh, If you need anything, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.